Okay, hi everybody. Uh, welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording this week's episode on Thursday, July 2nd. And as part of uh, the Shalom Hartman Institute's huge All Together Now Festival of Jewish Learning taking place online all this month, there's more information about the program. All of the activities are free. Uh, you can register at shalomhartman.org. And, and I want to welcome all the folks who are here as part of the New Jewish Canon Book Club uh, for today's conversation. Today's episode is part of a suite of activities and study experiences around the New Jewish Canon, a book that's out due out in two weeks from Academic Studies Press, edited by Dr. Claire Sufrin and myself, a book that collects the major ideas and debates of the last two generations of Jewish life, offering primary sources with analysis by an amazing array of North American and Israeli scholars about the importance of these ideas, the debates, and, uh, and the state of Jewish life today. One of the sections of the book is entitled Jewish Politics in the Public Square. Uh, earlier this week, as part of the New Jewish Canon Book Club on All Together Now, I talked about the overall contours of the book and went into a little bit of detail about this section. But today I'm joined by four contributors to this section who will talk about the documents and texts that they were asked to analyze for the book and why they're so significant. And after we hear from each of these scholars, we'll broaden our conversation to talk about the state of Jewish politics today and the Jewish public square, which is messy as ever, and we will have no shortage of topics. So let's jump right in. We have four guests today. Uh, Dr. Julie Cooper is the senior lecturer at the political science department at Tel Aviv University. Julie wrote about George Steiner, Judith Butler, and the new anti-Zionism. Shaul Magid is a distinguished fellow in Jewish studies at Dartmouth College and a senior fellow at the Hartman Institute in North America. Shaul wrote about a debate between Mayor Kahana and Yitz Greenberg that took place in the 1980s. He's writing a book due out soon, I believe, about Mayor Kahana, and he'll talk about some of uh, kind of political nationalism and radicalism. Daniel Kurtzer is the S. Daniel Abraham Professor of Middle East Policy Studies at Princeton University's, I believe it's now the School of International and Public Affairs, formerly the Wilson School. I apologize if I don't get that um, exactly right. Uh, I may also refer to uh, Daniel Kurtzer as Abba periodically. I am choosing the biblical obligation of honoring one's parents over uh, perhaps academic norms. Uh, Dan wrote about Benny Morris, Ari Shavit, and the mainstreaming of the conversation about Palestinian refugees. And Dr. Sarah Hirschhorn is currently the visiting assistant professor of Israel studies at Northwestern University. Sarah wrote about Peter Beinart's essay on the failure of the American Jewish establishment with either chronicled or launched some of the tensions around Israel and the organized Jewish community that have defined the last decade. So I'm grateful to all of you for being with us today. This is a all-star panel, uh, hashtag squad goals. Uh, I know our, our participants in the book club are excited to hear from all of you about your writing uh, and your reflection on, on these ideas. So uh, let's start with you, Julie. Uh, you wrote about um, Butler and Steiner. Tell us about uh, the significance of these authors and, and some of their ideas and your take on why they uh, do continue to matter uh, or why they should continue to matter. Just to contextualize, for those who are not aware, uh, the text in question are a 1985 essay by George Steiner called Our Homeland, the Text, and a 2013 uh, speech that Judith Butler gave at Brooklyn College um, about BDS. And uh, I think that the, it's also worth noting that these are both humanities professors, um, or were in the case of George Steiner, who is no longer with us. Um, and I think that their in both of their texts, they express either outright opposition to Zionism or in the case of George Steiner, reservations about Zionism. And their reservations and opposition are couched in a diasporic idiom. That is, in order to criticize and or oppose Zionism, they 
draw on an alternative Jewish tradition, which they define as diasporic. So I think these two texts are very interesting because they not only express increasing reservations about Zionism on the part of the American Jewish left, but they also illustrate the way that these reservations have increasingly been framed in terms of a reappropriation of diasporism as an alternative tradition. Now, as you may or may not know, there has always been Jewish opposition to Zionism, right? From the very inception of Zionism, Zionism was only one of many competing ideologies. um, And some of the other competing ideologies of the time um, were diasporic ideologies. That is, forms of Jewish nationalism, which sought to create a Jewish political collectivity of some kind in Europe, as opposed to in Palestine, and respond to the political and spiritual needs of Jews by organizing on the ground in Eastern Europe as opposed to moving to Palestine. Now, what I found interesting about these texts is if we situate them in the history of Jewish anti-Zionism and Jewish diasporism, I think that the form that diasporism takes in 20th century America is very different from the forms that diasporism has historically took in Eastern Europe, because as I just suggested, historically, the diasporist movements in Eastern Europe were nationalist movements. They defined the Jews as a national collective and sought to create a political collectivity of some kind uh, in the diaspora. But if we look at the text by Steiner and Butler, perhaps because as American Jews living at a moment of unprecedented um, wealth and flourishing of the Jewish community in America, the assumption being that the material uh, predicaments that diaspora nationalism sought to redress in Eastern Europe no longer apply to Jews in America, diasporism in 20th century America, in my view, becomes a very individualist discourse in which the diasporic legacy that's being drawn on is not one, say, of the Uh, medieval kihila. It's not a tradition of Jewish political organization in diaspora. Rather, it's an ethical tradition in which diaspora is a, diaspora essentially means a set of values such as homelessness, uh, alienation, exile, principled descent. And in their essays, both Steiner and Butler are claiming this diasporic tradition Um, as a place from which they, as dissenting individuals, can oppose the policies of the state of Israel and Zionism. So in my essay, I'm very interested in this individualist turn in which in the 20th century in America, diasporism has no longer, has, has stopped being a collective political project and has instead become a very individualist ethical tradition on which individuals can draw to dissent from the claims of the nation and the state. And I would, I guess I'll I'll just say in conclusion that as someone who shares some of Butler's and Steiner's reservations about the form that Zionism has taken in the state of Israel, I'm actually concerned that the individualist form that their diasporism takes, the attempt to define diasporism not as a collective political project, but rather as an individual ethos of principled dissent or an individual ethos of hybrid identity, Um, actually does not provide Jews who are uh, critical of the forms that Zionism has taken in the state of Israel with a strong enough basis from which to counter the racist and ethnocentric forms that Zionism uh, takes in the state of Israel today. So my analysis of the individualist turn that their diasporic idiom takes is also a critical analysis in that I actually, I think that it's a mistake 
to frame diasporism as a, an individual personal ethos as opposed to an active political project. Great. So we're going to come back to that a little bit uh, later on, especially because um, maybe a little less so with respect to both Steiner and Butler, but certainly the case with Beinart, uh, who Sarah wrote about, uh, there there has been, even over the past five years, a much larger significant mobilization of a collective ethos of those who are standing in opposition to Israeli policies. I think your, your analysis that the way that Butler and Steiner situate the legacy of diasporism as basically about um, uh, the individual ethical other, if there's something prophetic about about it um, is start is starting to be pushed back by uh, stronger organizations, uh, stronger organizing principles on the Jewish left that are actually building a vision for Jewish communal life that is collective in nature and that either doesn't situate the state of Israel at the center or continues to situate the state of Israel at the center but stands in opposition to it. So let's come back to that uh, in a little bit. Uh, thanks, thanks, Julie. Uh, Shoal, let me come to you for you. Um, uh, without drawing any any uh, imperfect analogies, if we want to kind of pivot from the far left for the to the far right, you, know, you wrote about Kahana. You've been writing and researching. You've kind of been living with Mayor Kahana for the last couple of years, and you studied uh, a debate that took place between Kahana and Yitz Greenberg in, in Riverdale in the 1980s. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the debate and a little bit of your take on the debate? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, in a certain sense, um, my contribution is a little bit different than a lot of the other ones in that there really is no text. There really is just a, a performance, really a debate between Mayor Kahana and, uh, and Irving Yitz Greenberg that, that took place at the synagogue of, of Avi Weiss in Riverdale. And Avi Weiss really plays actually an important role too, which I'll try to flesh out a little bit. And in trying to write about a debate and not a text, I think one of the things that's interesting is that debates, of course, are not often won on arguments and facts, but also on performance. They're performative events. And there's, audio, there's audience participation, and there's rhetoric, and there's a lot of emotion. And I think part of what I tried to draw out on the essay is not only what are the arguments that Kahana is making and what are the arguments that Greenberg is making, but really how are they both performing their particular positions. So there's something interesting about Kahana and Greenberg in general because they grew up together, because they were friends in high school, because they've known each other for their entire lives. And... Um, uh, they had, been, they had been in public together a couple of times. This was the last time that they actually appeared in public together. And what, what, the, what I think is important about this, this debate in the winter of 1988 is that this particular time, and this speaks to some of the project itself in terms of the 1980s, 1988 is an interesting in-between position. It's 11 years after the Likud comes to power. It's one year before the first intifada. It's... Um, six months before Kahana is ousted from the Knesset on the racism law. There's a lot of in-between here. So what's interesting about the debate is really as a window into, I think, American modern orthodoxy in the late 1980s on the question of Israel-Palestine. And basically what we have is two positions, one of them being the position of somebody who was already considered an outlier, Mayor Kahana. In other words, the racism law had already been legislated before the debate, but the Supreme Court had rendered its final decision. And Irving Yitz Greenberg, who was also a bit of an outlier in modern orthodoxy, has a whole other series of controversies that were happening in 1960s and 1970s. And what's being represented here, I think, are really two positions in modern orthodoxy, one on the rise and one on the dissent. 
And the one on the rise, I think, is the Kahana's position, although very often not attributed to Mayor Kahana because he was already somewhat of an outlier. And I think what is on the descent is what I would call the kind of liberal Zionism of modern orthodoxy that had really dominated American modern orthodoxy in the 1960s and 1970s. But by the 1980s, and even before the first intifada the next year, you're beginning to see, I think, a bit of a distancing of the modern orthodox community away from these moderate liberal Zionist ideas about coexistence, about a Palestinian state, about the ethical uh, imperatives of Zionism. That's what Greenberg really tries to push very, very hard. And Kahana's argument is basically an argument of um, insularity, an argument of fear. He basically says the idea of peace is, a, is just is, is a myth. There is no peace. There will be no peace until Messiah comes, he says in one of the lines of the debate. What is really at stake here is the survival of the Jewish state. And I think that language resonates very strongly with the audience. And I think it resonates very strongly with modern orthodoxy in general. And a lot of the very kind of, I would say, passionate arguments that Greenberg makes in the debate about tolerance, about coexistence, about moderation, about morality, they simply are falling increasingly on deaf ears in a, in a, in a modern Orthodox community that is starting to move, that is moving further and further to the right. So I think the importance of this debate is it really encapsulates a moment of division between these two worldviews, expounded by two fairly marginal figures who are both actually articulating very different visions within orthodoxy. And one of the interesting things that I think is the reason that Kahana wins the debate and Greenberg loses is that Greenberg is not willing to actually make the case to this modern orthodox audience that Israel is a modern secular state. And therefore, religion, the the role of religion has to be seen as a subsidiary part of a secular nation state. He doesn't make that move. And as the result of not making that move, I think, results in him uh, ultimately not uh, being successful. So interesting. So so in some ways, by by playing on the same terrain as Kahana that is operating within a religious nationalist framework, he kind of becomes vulnerable to a much more full-throated expression of that kind of religious Zionism, and that makes it kind of easier for for Kahana. Let me go to you, um, uh, Dan slash Abba. Uh, switching from the um, diaspora analysis, uh, so to speak, of the tensions or the issues that define the debate, uh, you studied, we, we assigned to you the uh, Benny Morris, who kind of inaugurates the scholarly research in a significant way about the Palestinian refugees, and then Ari Shavit, who, who in many ways mainstreams it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the, you know, coming from the Israeli side, the importance of the Palestinian refugee conversation uh, for this for this conversation on, on, on Israeli policy as it's being debated in the public square. Sure. Uh, we're going to go to the other diaspora, the Palestinian diaspora. Uh, and unlike the uh, selections in most of the canon, the real story of the Palestinian refugees actually is the history of 1948. In other words, before the period that this canon uh, studies, it's a history of displacement, dispossession, defeat, exile, and ultimately a large diaspora population. And it has become the centerpiece of the Palestinian national narrative. And thus, it is at the center 
of the Israeli-Palestinian clash of narratives. Benny Morris, one of the original new historians of the 1970s and 1980s, emerged as perhaps the most iconoclastic of those new historians, for he shattered the prevailing civic discourse in Israel on the causes of and responsibility for the refugee problem. Until that point, Israelis held that the Palestinians themselves were largely responsible for the exodus of about 750,000 people from their homes during the War of Israeli Independence. The Israeli narrative held that Arab leaders had urged Palestinians to leave so as to clear the way for Arab armies to defeat the Zionists, and that the normal chaos of war accounted for the remainder of those who had left. Until Morris, Israeli historians attributed only marginal responsibility on Israeli leaders and the army themselves. Morris accessed the archives and files and published a book that rocked the country, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem, which, as the selection in the canon indicates, spreads responsibility and blame far more widely than only on the Arabs themselves. It does cite Arab lack of leadership, orders from Arab leaders to flee, the breakdown of the Arab economy and the breakdown of law and order, Israeli military attacks and deliberate expulsions, Arab fear of Jewish atrocities, and, in Morris's words, as the final and decisive precipitation to flight, the fear of imminent attack by the Haganah, the Irgun, or Lehi. Morris's research was harshly criticized at the time by establishment historians, who called his methodology and sourcing into question. Morris then returned to the archives and published a new volume, an updated volume, with the word revisited at the end, with stronger sourcing, but essentially the same conclusions. Years later, a well-regarded Israeli journalist, well-regarded at the time, Ari Shavit, wrote a book about the emergence of the state. His chapter on the expulsion of the Palestinians in Lida was a devastating account of deliberate ethnic cleansing, a kind of vivid literary description of Morris's dry academic thesis. A word about Morris and Shavit is in order. Morris believes Israel should have expelled all the Palestinians and believes Ben-Gurion's decision not to do so was a historical mistake of the highest order. In proclaiming these personal views, Morris went from a darling of the Israeli left to a pariah. Shavit's book became a bestseller and he was a sought-after speaker until, that is, serious charges of patterns of sexual misconduct surfaced, and he resigned his position at Haaretz newspaper. It's hard enough to read and absorb the underlying story in some of these canon selections, let alone read them understanding the character flaws of the authors, a few of which are represented in today's discussion. But the underlying story here must be understood if we are to try to reach a political settlement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Camp David II in 2000 failed largely because of the seeming inability to even begin dealing with this question, and very little progress has been made since either on the vexing question of narratives or the more technical questions of what to do with the millions of Palestinians who claim a right of return to the homes they left behind. Until a discussion of these narrative and technical issues can take place, this problem will uh, become a major source of discomfort 
for the Israeli-Palestinian search for peace. Thank you for that. So one of the pieces that I want to come back to in this analysis is the the Palestinian refugees as a as a historical phenomenon and as a site of both uh, tension between Israelis and Palestinians around questions of history and memory, right? That's a piece of this, but also a question of policy uh, continues to to roil the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the likelihood of settlement. But it also becomes a kind of totem for uh, debates about Israel. Um, and it's oftentimes hard to tell whether when American Jews, for instance, fight about Israel, they are fighting on behalf of Palestinians or on behalf of their own Judaism. And I want to come back to that a little bit. And to what extent do you think the reception of Shavit in the American Jewish community is about a shifting empathy by American Jews towards Palestinians or, or something else entirely. So we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, let me turn to you, Sarah. You, uh, you studied Peter Beinart's essay in, uh, the New York Review of Books, uh, The Failure of the American Jewish Establishment. It goes on to become kind of the anchor of his book on the crisis of Zionism. And Peter himself kind of, uh, becomes a kind of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it prophet or, uh, one of the principal kind of leaders of the new American Jewish uh, criticism of Israel. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Peter's essay and, and your take on Peter's essay? I think it's interesting to juxtapose Peter Barnard and Benny Morris in the sense that they're both figures that have moved in a different political direction um, subsequent to the failure of peace process to perhaps even maybe the failure of their own work resonating um, in the way that they may have hoped with certain constituencies. So Peter Beinart today, of course, is, as Yehuda has mentioned, has sort of emerged as this kind of prophetic figure of the, maybe today, the non-Zionist left or the very highly critical liberal Zionist left um, today, you know, becoming the editor of Jewish Currents and um, sort of trying to revitalize very much the segment of society that he writes about in this uh, essay where he points to the disaffection of the, I guess what today we would call the millennial generation in regards to Zionism and the failure of what he calls the American Jewish establishment, these various acronym organizations and trying to mobilize either a coherent and compassionate policy towards the Israel-Palestine conflict, but also in understanding the needs of a new generation who perhaps, you know, are not in line with um, those of an old guard. Um, it's kind of hard to see whether this was a prophecy that fell on dull ears or whether it was just a prophecy that took time to to resolve itself. I think if we looked in the immediate years after the essay was written, we wouldn't have necessarily seen that much change um, on the American Jewish scene. And in fact, whatever change that um, did manifest itself, to my mind, came from within, the, you know, just the natural changing of the old guard at some of these organizations uh, new efforts on behalf of the millennial generation to organize amongst themselves, uh, what role Beinart had as the kind of uh, shepherd of this process um, is a little bit unclear, um, but certainly he pointed to problems that uh, existed and continue to exist. I think what's interesting for me is looking at this essay, not necessarily in its own time or sort of the limited time span afterwards to see the change that happened, but to try and both um, rewind and fast forward from this essay. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in my own research looking at a generation of what was then called radical Zionists in the 1960s and 1970s, who, you know, were probably the first and perhaps even more um, eloquent and passionate 
advocates of the same cause of challenging the, the Jewish American Jewish establishment and more broadly globally the diaspora Jewish establishment on issues pertaining to the Israel-Palestine conflict in the immediate out of the 1967 war. So Feiner himself really is not an innovator here. He just follows in this tradition and um, I think hits a nerve at a particular moment in time after the Gaza war around the time of the Gaza flotilla, when actually the American Jewish community was rather actually not convulsing in the same way that it was in the 1960s, um, which also makes it interesting to sort of bookmark that chapter with um, the current the current situation where we see very much the same challenge occurring, but this time around issues not about Israel or um, the diaspora-Israel relationship, but about domestic issues of racial equality, of inclusion, and of um, a policy of perhaps black Jewish relations that needs to be revisited. So Beinert's uh, influence, I think, has taken many forms, or this general attitude of challenging the establishment has taken many forms. And he stands sort of at a moment in time in between, I think, two very convulsive moments in American Jewish history, that of the 1960s and that of today. And it's interesting to see, looking both backward and forward, what his influence has been. Great. So thanks all of you for these presentations. As you can tell, uh, folks who are going to read the book or hearing these presentations, you know, it's not a book that's organized on like, okay, let's take, you know, 30 years of analysis of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's a book that's really looking at a moment in time uh, in Jewish history, 1980 to 2015, both to try to understand a little bit of the present, but also to kind of make sense of some larger trends. And, and as a result, like, Kahana Greenberg, Butler Steiner are not usually people who find themselves in the same sentence, but they are both, they're all objects of the same moment. So what I'd like to do now is kind of tr transition a little bit to some of the connections uh, between these different pieces and some of the larger conversation pieces. Sarah, if I could start with you. I mean, here's like a big question that, that just came up on a different session that I was, uh, I was leading this morning. There's no question all, you know, all four of the talk so far, all four of the pieces signal that something something has changed uh, over the past few generations about the nature of the American Jewish-Israel conversation, much greater polarity, much greater comfort of litigating the disputes around Israel in the American Jewish public square. That's like the myth of the airing of dirty laundry, which is not to say that between 1948 and 1980, there was none of that, but something has significantly shifted. And I guess I want to start with kind of a moral question, which is, is this kind of vibrant, hostile, deep public debate about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is that existence in the American Jewish community bad? <laughs> I know it's like a kind of a reductive question. Is it, is it objectively, do you, do you see it as like fundamentally a bad thing? Um, I don't think debate is a bad thing, but I think the nature of the debate is a bad thing. I mean, how we talk about it when we talk about Israel is the problem, not talking about Israel. In fact, anybody who has spent any time in Israel itself knows that there's a much broader and vociferous spectrum of debate around these issues within territorial Israel or even with Israel over the Green Line than there is in the American Jewish community. And I think that's maybe what one of the problems is, is that the conversation has become a little bit reductionist, that you're either on this side or that side of the debate. I think it's also that um, it's taking um, a turn where we're not listening to each other. We have our own talking points. We engage in our own spheres of influence. We feel the need to rewrite the narrative for the other, literally to the point that yesterday I was looking on Twitter, you know, the uh, and seeing that one organization had essentially rewritten 
the talking points of another and posted it to social media to correct the narrative for what that organization should have written. And, you know, that's not, that's not dialogue. That's, um, you know, essentially rewriting history for another party. I think we need to be listening um, with more, maybe more compassion or at least with more uh, sincerity to the idea that there are substantive arguments here to be made on either side, that um, this isn't just a case of I virtue signal which side of the debate I feel uh, I'm on, but to engage in an earnest and honest conversation around Israel, which I'm sorry to say I'm not sure is happening. We saw that very poignantly this week when one Jewish American Jewish organization, um, you know, sort of failed to fall in lockstep with some of the more uh, dominant positions. And the attack was immediate. And the attack, I think, was in some cases ad hominem and otherwise. Um, And I didn't see that there was an earnest attempt to understand the position that this organization may have been coming from. There was rather just an opportunity to pounce on the fact that it didn't mimic the other, um, you know, progressive script that had been written by any number of other organizations in their own press releases earlier. And I think that if we've gotten to that point in the debate where we've stopped listening um, and essentially we've tuned out, then, you know, this is an unhealthy, this is a very unhealthy relationship and it's becoming increasingly toxic. The last thing I think I would want to say is that I am encouraged that millennials unlike the fears of many social scientists who have been hand-wringing about distancing from Israel for decades, um, are engaged around this conflict. But the question of how you move from direct action to an actual serious conversation remains one that I think hasn't quite been resolved. And if there's going to be real change in this community, which I think um, Peter Beinart's essay underscores, it's going to have to come not only from those of a younger generation, but also from within these organizations themselves. And I don't think that um, the dance that's going on between these two sides right now is actually really um, getting very far. It takes two to tango. So we'll have to see where this ends up. But I am concerned that um, the conversation uh, is unhealthy, but also the conversation is very limited. When I look to Israel and see a much broader spectrum of debate there, I feel that they are having despite many, many difficulties, um, a much more robust discussion about what's happening. And our discussion has become so polarized that we only have two points of view. And that isn't, that isn't a conversation. That's a boxing match. Yeah, I would just add uh, maybe two things to what Sarah said. One is uh, a little bit more emphasis on the generational divide in this conversation about Israel. You know, for some of us, we are of the Leon Uris generation the Exodus generation. And even if we have become ardent proponents of peace and some would call us leftists or whatever, there is a part of us that has been affected not just by the narrative of those early years, but also by the experience that Israel faced. Uh, The concern over Israel's survival in 1967, which, you know, knowing the results, we tend to look back and say, well, why was there anybody nervous But if you lived through the period in the run-up to the 1967 war, uh, it was a period in which the uh, prayers and the Tehillim that were being said were being said earnestly. Nobody knew how Israel would survive. Uh, The generation after us uh, may have very strong feelings of love and all the rest, 
and may have read Leon Uris, but has lived through a very different set of experiences, uh, the Lebanon War, a war of choice, the intifadas, and so forth. Uh, so I think that's one additional factor in, in this discussion. The second is uh, the difference between the positions taken by uh, Jewish organizations in the United States and the growing empowerment of individuals, largely wealthy individuals who uh, will make their views known either in the United States or directly uh, in their contacts with Israelis outside of normal institutional channels. Uh, it doesn't matter what uh, to both the current administration in Washington or to the prime minister of Israel, uh, very much of what APAC says, it matters a great deal what an individual in Las Vegas says. And that's a change of a rather great significance uh, over what uh, occurred many years ago. So a couple of comments. Uh, one is that on Leas Yuris' book and the Otto Preminger movie, I used to show that film to students and I don't do it anymore because it was just absolutely insufferable for them. One of the things that's interesting about that movie is it's not really about Israel. It's about America. It's about an American view of Israel. I mean, basically, the centerpiece of the story is about intermarriage between Ari ben Kanan and a, and, a, and a Gentile from Nebraska or something. I mean, that, the whole story of the founding of Israel is built around the anxieties of American Jews. Okay, I wanted to leave that. Um, I think, you know, when I was having the Sarah talk, I was thinking about uh, the, famous, um, the famous thing that was coined in the 1965 Berkeley free speech movement, which is that the issue is not the issue. And I think that somehow a lot of what's going on in the American Jewish conversation about Israel is really not about Israel. It's really about American Jewish identity. It's really about an anxiety and a struggle to come to terms um, into what it means to be an American Jew, to what it means to be a liberal or a progressive or a radical. And, you know, Israel is the occasion for this, for this, for this kind of hand-wringing. But a lot of the people who are fighting this battle really know very, very little about Israel. They even know less about Zionism. I mean, Zionism is something that is, it, people don't know anything about. So I think that it's really important to think about this. This conversation is really a conversation um, about American Jews. And the last thing I want to say is that Kahana could have predicted this. I mean, Kahana said right away, American Jews who are committed to liberalism, who are committed to progressivism, they will eventually abandon Israel. Because Israel is not a liberal project, because Israel is not a progressive project, and that the ability of the liberally-minded American Jew, and take like Yitz Greenberg as the kind of prototype here, it's just not strong, the case is not strong enough, the sentiments are not strong enough, the commitment is not strong enough, that eventually the next generation is going to kind of move back into the more progressive radical issues like Black Lives Matter and things like that. So in a certain way, I think if Kahana was, is, is looking from wherever he's looking, up or down, he would basically say, yes, of course, this is exactly what I thought would happen. American Jews, younger American Jews, are going to abandon this project. I think I'm going to echo Shaul and say that I was actually surprised by the framing of your original question, which seemed to presume that the barometer or measure of the health of the American Jewish community was the ethos in which American Jews debate Israel. And I think that, to me, that very framing seems anachronistic because it presumes that the debate about Israel is the most pressing, most salient political debate facing the American Jewish community, which I think empirically may not be true anymore, certainly for, for a younger generation. So I think there is something 
um, anachronistic about the very framing of the question that presumes that if we want to evaluate the health of the American Jewish community or the state of Jewish public discourse, the debate about Israel is the place to look because, of course, that is the most salient political issue for all American Jews, which, again, I think empirically um, is no longer true and maybe reflects, I mean, I guess I, I would, instead of talking about, you know, the the way that pollsters talk about, you know, the alienation of or indifference of the younger generation, if I come back to the, the diasporic language that I used at the beginning um, of, of, of my remarks, I think maybe it is a, an expression of a, a new kind of diaspora culture in America in which what, what one of my colleagues, Yossi Shane, calls the Israelization of world Judaism is actually undoing itself to a certain extent, that um, American Judaism is less Israelized than it once was. Um, so now I'll put on my Israeli hat on. And wearing my Israeli hat, I actually wanted to contest Sarah's assertion that the bounds of discourse are much wider in Israel than they are in the American Jewish community. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think especially if you look at the past, the three elections that we just had, the last election cycle, first of all, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a non-issue. It was not discussed at all in any of the election, the many, the many elections that we uh, had, the, had the chance to vote in uh, in the past year. The, uh, what, what American Jews seem to think of as the most salient political issue for Israelis, namely the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, was a non-issue because, in fact, it is not the most salient political issue for most Israelis. And I think it's not in part because precisely because of a narrowing of the bounds of acceptable public opinion. Um, and so I think if you look at the public discourse around the annexation, for example, which as, you know, as of yesterday may or may not happen, even Benny Gantz, even those who are supposed to be the voices of the center left, um, in principle, they too support annexation with, you know, different reservations and twists. But certainly there are many Israelis who um, oppose the annexation and, you know, there have been some protests, but it's a very small minority representing a very small segment of public opinion, which is not considered the mainstream public opinion. So I, I do think that sometimes American Jews have a mistaken view of what the most salient political issues are for Israelis. And if you, again, I'll just finish by saying what, what I think they were in the past election. Um, they were either just an up or down veto on Bibi, on, on Netanyahu, um, on the various corruption charges that have been leveled against him. But they were also, to the extent that there were genuine ideological debates, the ideological debates are not about the relationship to the Palestinians. They're about the place of the Supreme Court and the place of the Supreme Court in Israeli government and issues about separation of powers or the lack thereof. Um, so I think it's somewhat misleading if American Jews presume that what perhaps once was the most salient Jewish political issue for them, namely the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is the most salient political issue for Israeli Jews today. I think I think what I understood Sarah saying, and or if it's not what Sarah actually said, it's it's at least what I have argued before and will continue to argue, is that um, it's not necessarily that these two political communities line up, but that the American Jewish community paradoxically and as many of you have indicated, kind of predicates a lot of its identity and fixates a lot of its most urgent issues around Israel. But when it comes to the nature of the debate around Israel, has a much narrower band of legitimate political positions than, for instance, the Israeli Knesset. So if if you, you know, and that's certainly the case to the left, like if you in an American Jewish institution espouse 
what are essentially merits politics, forget about the joint list, um, those are considered to be out of bounds in the American Jewish discourse, which kind of doesn't really make sense. If you're trying to build your identity around another um, another place, you should try to mirror it as opposed to foist something on it. But it kind of builds on, a, there's a whole theme that's kind of running through our discussion today of um, the weird way in which in the American Jewish community, uh, Israel is more a centerpiece, a fixture, the defining element of American Judaism, or less. And and it's hard to tell with the hostility of intracommunal discourse whether that means that it's it certainly doesn't feel like less, it's perhaps more so. It was a fascinating, uh, I think, historically significant moment yesterday, actually. So David Harris of the AJC, which is one of the organizations that we're kind of subtweeting throughout this conversation, uh, because they had, they had put out a statement that was they thought anti-annexation, but was framed as like, here's what we'll do to defend Israel throughout the annexation. And they got, um, you know, basically eviscerated by the American Jewish left as a result. So yesterday, David Harris, uh, was doing, uh, a Q and A, uh, a live Q and A, uh, online. And somebody asked about the Blaustein Ben Gurion agreement, uh, of the early 1950s. Now, Unfortunately, Blaustein-Ben-Gurion agreement is too early for 1980 to 2015, um, but it's clearly one of like the defining kind of political texts for Jews of the 20th century, where Blaustein, then the head of the American Jewish Committee, agrees with Ben-Gurion, um, makes a, an agreement that Ben-Gurion pri- publicly honors but privately never endorses, which is that American Jews get to shape their own political destiny, Israeli Jews get to shape their own political destiny, and the way that that covenant gets enacted is through American Jewish public support for Israel through forms of advocacy, lobbying, and philanthropy. But what's extraordinary about that is that it means at the at, you know, uh, Abba, to your point, at the earliest moment of the creation of the state of Israel, American Jews are actually asserting the need to not be usurped by that story. <laughs> They're saying, we support it, we like it. It's good. We'll help you. Blaustein himself was not really a passionate Zionist. He was much more a diasporist. Um, so Harris yesterday says on the call, when someone raised the Blaustein-Ben-Gurion agreement, he said, well, that's not, that doesn't really apply anymore. So ironically, it's like the AJC of 2020 is actually far more is- Israelist in the sense. American Jewish identity has there, there isn't, um, the American Jewish committee is in Israel in some, in that some sense, a, a predicated on Israel as the centerpiece of American Jewish identity. Um, and that's, it's just, it's, it's, it's weird, right? Cause apropos the, the comment about, uh, about Leon Uris or any, any sort of other, um, set of authors or, or writers, you would actually think that that might have been the case for one generation of Jews, and now we were seeing the proliferation of a kind of deeply American Judaism that was agnostic about Israel over time. That should be what's growing. What it seems like what is emerging is actually a very passionate American Judaism that's still predicated on Israel, just doesn't like the particular politics of the of the previous generation. Yeah, there's a, there's so much to unpack here, and I know you're going to cover a lot of it in your subsequent uh, sessions, but... I, I would point to two issues which uh, may be worthy of discussion later, if not today. One is the conflation of uh, Israeliness and Jewishness, which has become such a, a feature of the debate within American Judaism uh, regarding Israel's appropriation of uh, Jewish, in other words, marriage, divorce, conversion, where Israeli religious leaders seek to determine uh, what is Jewish as opposed to what is Israeli? I mean, one could make the argument, at least 
intellectually that Americans should uh, leave to Israel decisions regarding what a state needs to decide, its security, its economy, its society, but cannot leave to Israel decisions which Jews need to decide, the definition of who is a Jew, conversion, marriage, and so forth. Uh, But that's been conflated in a way which has made it very hard to be critical. You take uh, the reform movement, for example, which is quite critical of uh, Israel's handling of these religious definitions, uh, and that gets conflated with opposition to other factors as well. The second impact or the impact of that also relates to how Jews are seen outside of the United States and Israel. Having lived for almost seven and a half years in an Arab country, I could have been Israeli or Jewish. As far as Egyptians were concerned, it's the same thing. Uh, there was no real difference in their minds. And so to argue with them, no, no, I'm an American Jew and I support Israel, it just, you know, kind of just went right over their head. It made, it made no difference. And that's an issue for uh, both Israelis and Americans to think about uh, because of the impact it has uh, uh, outside of these two countries. Our doors are open and we're ready for the summer. That means you can sign up for conversations, lectures, and electives at the Hartman Institute's Month of Learning. All together now, Jewish ideas for this moment. You can register for the program and sign up for events at bit.ly slash Hartman Summer. For decades, Jewish leaders from across North America have traveled to Machon Hartman in Israel to learn alongside inspiring faculty and meet old and new friends in the warmth of the Jerusalem summer. This year, we won't be able to gather in Jerusalem, but we have opened the doors of our Beit Midrash and have invited everyone inside free of charge. All Together Now is a month-long celebration of ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. Join hundreds of Jewish leaders between June 29th and July 23rd as over 60 of our scholars from Israel and North America address the moral and theological questions facing us at this moment of crisis and opportunity. Are you registered? Have you signed up for your sessions yet? Just go to bit.ly slash Hartman Summer and register for free. But hurry, because some sessions have limited space. I want to talk about two other pieces of this. One is... um in the nature of the debate, invariably in talking about the debate, uh, the, the, one of the questions that gets adduced is the affective question. It's not, it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. And I have very mixed feelings about this because we're talking about life and death issues, democracy, Palestinians. I mean, these are big issues. So to the kind of tone policing that oftentimes governs the debate about how we do Israel, um, there does some, there's something there though, right? Where, you know, it, for all of the, you know, there's some version of a criticism of Israel around annexation that is considered kosher and some not. I, I referenced earlier in the week in talking about Shavit that Morris gets blackballed from Israeli academia. Shavit keynotes the APAC conference. And when Shavit is asked how he can do that, it's he says, because, you know, because everybody knows that I really love Israel. Um, or like this week, you know, David Ellenson, you know, of the former president of HUC writes a, to love Israel is to criticize it. Um, but it does seem as though um, that is a, that's kind of a selectively applied uh, metric or measure. I'm just curious if, if, for, for all of you, um, as we reflect on the, the, the dynamism of this ongoing conversation among the Jewish people, your thoughts on the, on the affective frame. Is it useful? Um, is it, um, how do you think it, how do you think it's dictator, how, 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 how it's governed? And how do you, what do you think we're going to continue to see in terms of how, um, 
not just what we argue about when it comes to Israel, but but um, but how it's meant, how those positions are meant to be argued. Go ahead, Sean. Well, I, I, I think I could start. Um, it's, it's a great question, um, and I think it is a kind of tone policing that really isn't reciprocated one way or the other. In other words, you can have somebody make a very passionate, uh, a very passionate argument that is pro-Israel. Um, with all of the with all of the ways in which that passion really speaks to a particular kind of a commitment and devotion, and you can have a person that's going to make a passionate devotion argument that's anti-Zionist. Both of those things are not going to be evaluated equally. So it's it's it, you know the tone policing really goes. I'm I'll listen to your critique of Israel if you first tell me that you love Israel. And when I'm confronted with that, it's always, no, I don't have to tell you that I love Israel. And I don't even know what it means to love Israel. I don't know what it means to love a country, even though I may be a citizen of the country. I mean, I take the Hannah Arendt position there on that and her <laughs> argument with Christian Shalom, right? What does Avot Israel really mean? What is, how is it just being used as a policing tactic? I know that one of the things that Beinart does, both when he speaks publicly and also in his writing, is that because he's so vulnerable to attack, he has to tell his audience how much he's a Zionist every other paragraph, right? He has to make that commitment. I think it's, it's manipulative, and it speaks to a certain kind of anxiety and tension, and, you know, you have these groups, like If Not Now and other groups, that basically have to, be, have to, have to you know, exhibit their Zionist bona fides before people will listen to them. And so I I, I, I push back against that, and people say, oh, you're an anti-Zionist, as if that means what exactly? So I think that, in a way, I mean, going back, going back to the historically, it's so interesting, when did, at what point, this speaks to Horowitz's thing, is, oh, that covenant doesn't work anymore, that really was started back and built more in 42. When did that, end? like, when did the Zionization of American Jewry become such that that is actually the lowest common denominator? under which you're no longer a legitimate interlocutor. I think that's, that's part of the dangerous nature of the conversation as I see it. I want to pick up on Shoal's theme of the lowest common denominator. Um, if you're, you know, in the progressive left or say perhaps even in the academy today and you admit that you're a Zionist, the kind of wave of revulsion and disgust that will roll over the face of your interlocutor also indicates that you have now become the lowest common denominator of that conversation and in fact no longer part of that conversation and that the and that in many spaces though certainly not in all the only thing that gets you the ticket into um, the, the, the camp is to make a passionate denunciation of your Zionism, and then you are embraced as a true lover of progressive causes and a partner in, in progressive, um, in, in the search for racial equality or other, or other, um, or other, you know, very important issues that are going on within the American Jewish community as well as the broader American community. And I, I, I'm really concerned that, that that there's this level of revulsion for Zionism that almost requires its um, uh, disabusing yourself of any um, ideological or even emotive sentiment in order to be, um, you know, gain gain the love of your followers or gain the love of um, gain the love of other um, political movements. And that I think is a very very dangerous trend in America. 
But they both, and both of those examples would effectively testify to the same phenomenon, which is locating this as basically the litmus test, locating Israel as the litmus test of Jewishness. And if you're in politically progressive spaces, and certainly the academy kind of constitutes one of those, you know, once it's a litmus test, it's going to, it's going to kind of, it's going to test in both directions to the acidic side or the base side. Um, Julie, I guess I'm curious, you know, especially the, with the reference back to Arendt and Shalom. And, and for what it's worth, I'm going against trouble for saying this. One of the other texts, a pair of texts that we included in the volume was, a. Uh, an acerbic exchange, a criticism by Daniel Gordas of Rabbi Sharon Brous around the time of the Gaza War, about six, seven years ago, and then Brous's response in the time of Israel. And um, I actually, I found that exchange to be like the, the second coming of the Arendt Shalom exchange, um, but uglier and taking place in public, and because it was rooted on exactly the same uh, axis of you first have to show your love of the Jewish people before I'm going to take your criticism of Israel seriously, and and. And although although Browse is much more a Zionist than Arendt ultimately was, um, her, her argument back is, wait a second, caring about Palestinians is caring about the idea of code of ethics. That's what it means to be a Zionist. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to leave that as a parenthesis. But Julie, you in your opening, when you talked about um, Butler and Steiner, you offered the criticism, and it's in the book also, of um, of both of them kind of positioning their diasporism in a kind of individualism. So I, I guess I'm curious whether you think that lines up with this affective question. Is there something wrong with that expression of anti-Zionism when it doesn't, when it doesn't meaningfully co- connect to the collective story of the Jewish people? Is it leaving something, is it leaving something out in ways that undermine its own effectiveness as a, as a form of criticism? I do think it's leaving something out um, in ways that undermine its own effectiveness as a source of criticism, but I wouldn't um, say that its deficits are affective, right? That, I mean, certainly Judith Butler has a very passionate, her criticism is intensely passionate, right? She has a, an intense affective engagement with Jewish sources, with the Jewish tradition, and that's precisely why she chooses to frame her opposition to Zionism in a diasporic idiom, right? In an idiom that is in some sense Jewish, um, although, of course, she she is concerned not to um, essentialize the meaning of Jewishness and imply that only, you know, Jews have a, have a monopoly on ethical values. But it's clear that her criticism and that of Steiner, um, their criticisms are both coming from a place of deep, passionate engagement and Part of the criticism of Israel, which does, I think, verge on a problematic essentialism, is something to the effect that uh, the state of Israel has distorted the Judaism that I so love. But to the extent that I think that their position is politically limited, it's not because of an affective deficit or register. Um, It's because uh, this ethos of individual principle dissent, the kind of not in my name, don't speak for me. Well, certainly it's, it is important to register principle dissent um, when states commit egregious violations of human rights. Um, so I'm not trying to imply otherwise, but I just don't think that's a sufficient basis on which to build a movement that offers an alternative to state-centered Zionism, right? And so if the point is to offer an alternative to the form that Zionism has taken in the contemporary state of Israel and offer an alternative political vision, that has to be a collective political vision. It can't just be individual people standing up and saying, I am outraged by the violence and moral violations that are being committed. Um, And so that's where I think that a a more um, traditional version of diasporism in which diaspora is not an individual ethos of dissent or hybridity, but rather a model of communal living 
could perhaps offer a more robust mm -hmm. substantive alternative to state-centered forms of Zionism as they're actually practiced in Israel today. And I, just to, 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 to finish, I think it may be the case that some of the newer groups on the American Jewish left, like If Not Now or Ben the Ark or Jewish Currents, um, maybe they, they are offering a more robust collective vision of what a diasporic mode of, of Jewish living is that, again, is not just about saying, standing up and saying, Israel does not speak for me, but actually involves building an alternative set of uh, practices and institutions. Yeah, and there's a fascinating overlapping conversation about the, the trends in progressive politics in general, whether, for instance, when someone uses a slogan like defund the police, and it turns out it's actually code for a, a, a robust theory of how to actually ensure community security and trust, but it, all it sounds like is like tear it down, right? There's a, it's a rhetorical question, but it's also a much bigger question of what's the alternative vision that you have for society post, like what's the post nationalist version that you have for a society? Um, so there's a, there's a rhetorical question and substantive question. Let me ask one last question. One of the big questions, uh, that I think looms for us as uh, us on the American Jewish side uh, when it comes to support for Israel is annexation. Uh, annexation offers offers the possibility, to, you know, acknowledging that annexation day has basically come and passed. So something will happen. We don't quite know what it is yet. Um, almost every version, almost every version of annexation involves major existential questions for Israeli democracy and for Israel being able to refer to itself as a democracy. And the American Jewish community has, for better or worse, positioned one of its key talking points for American Jewish support for Israel uh, as American Jewish support for Judaism and democracy, or for the possibility of a Jewish and democratic state. And here, Support for Israel does line up in a deep way with American Jewish identity. Part of the reason, part of the way that American Jews see themselves as is thriving within the framework of democracy. So there's a good chance in the foreseeable that American Jews are going to have to effectively choose between support for a Jewish state, even though it's not as democratic as they would like it to be, or possibly not a democracy, or I simply cannot support uh, a regime that's that's not democratic. Um, and that's where the, Pal the question of Palestinians as central agents in the story of the Jewish people in the 20th, 20th and 21st century returns. I guess I I'm curious for either personal or professional reflections on what you think that conversation looks like for, for American Jews. What does it look like to, for a community to actually wrestle with? You know, maybe it's the only the Leon Uris generation that says, you have me captured regardless of what, <laughs> regardless of what the governance structure is. I, I'm just curious for for your take on how does American Judaism navigate uh, the 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 kind of post democracy moment in terms of its relationship with Israel. Uh, I guess I'll go first. Um, uh, there's so much to to say about this issue. Um, first of all, I think the conversation that uh, we're having in the United States on this issue is terribly misguided, uh, because in fact, uh, creeping annexation has been taking place for so many years that its formalization uh, in a law in the Knesset will have um, juridical implications and it will carry certain political implications vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Israel's neighbors and possibility of normalization with Arabs. But I just fear that uh, if the Israeli government decides not to go forward, uh, American Jews will breathe this tremendous sigh of relief and simply stop paying attention to what's happening on the ground every single day, which constitutes creeping annexation, number one. Number two, 
Um, the debate, Yehuda, as you suggested, is, uh, has also been misguided in the sense that it's Israel's own Declaration of Independence that talks about a Jewish and democratic state. And um, if Julie's right that, you know, there's so little discussion of this in Israel, uh, this is a huge, a huge matter for the country. Forget American Jews. It should be a huge matter for the people of Israel to finally decide after 1967 if they want to be Jewish and democratic or if they want to be Jewish and not democratic uh, and hold on to the territories. That's really one of the strangest uh, phenomena. And number three, I would say that it's um, ironic uh, when you read the Israeli press these days, how much is depending upon what the president of the United States says with regard to this cosmic decision by the state of Israel. You know, if any other moment um, anybody were to suggest that Israel should hold up until the president decides what he's going to say, Israel would correctly cry, no, 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 we're a sovereign country. And we will take your views into account, but don't presume to tell us what to do. And yet that's exactly what's happened now. Israel has given up a significant degree of its sovereign decision-making to a very untrustworthy character in the White House. And that's just something that's, you know, it's, it's, it would be humorous if it weren't so scary. I am actually a bit, a bit um, reluctant to jump on the anti-annexation wagon because I think it's a bit of a cover. In a sense, it's like moving the goalposts into the parking lot. Because as you, I think as you rightly said, so you threaten annexation and then you pull back from annexation and then suddenly occupation becomes okay. You've just created a different notion of an acceptable norm. And I think that, that, that I'm, I'm not sure what the intentions here are, but I think that's part of the problem. So I think that's something that American Jews should pay attention to when that question resolves itself, whether there is annexation or there's no annexation, because whether there is annexation or there's no annexation, there's already basically been annexation. That's kind of what you're saying, de facto annexation, keeping annexation. The other thing is, is you know, you mentioned the Jewish Democratic part of the Declaration of Independence, which only really was added in the 1980s. It wasn't a part of the original document. One of the things that's interesting about Kahana here is that he and the left both came out very early to say that Jewish and democratic is impossible, right? It's simply an impossibility on structural grounds, on political grounds, on demographic grounds. And what ended up happening is you, you had the emergence of people like Ruth Gavison and Sandy Smua coming up with this notion of an ethnic democracy. Because from the perspective of a liberal democracy, Jewish and democratic is an impossibility. So if you have an ethnic democracy, then perhaps you can kind of fit the Jewish and democratic in there. Whether ethnic democracy is really just a bit of a band-aid to the problem is something that jur- Israeli jurists have been arguing and political theorists have been arguing. So I think, I think the Jewish and democratic thing is extremely important because that's something that American Jews have hung their support on, the only democracy in the Middle East and so on and so forth. So that it's not really about annexation and it's not even really about occupation. The question, I think, is, is Jewish and democratic really actually viable at all? 
whether there's an occupation or whether there's not an occupation. And I think that's, that, that would be an interesting conversation for American Jews to have. I think, interestingly, I feel, show that we're really at, like, Sofaderef, the end of the road of Kahana's thinking, that, you know, now you, now the fork in the road has come and you need to you need to choose, and here American Jews are. And I think that one of the things that I find a little bit unsettling, reflecting on Ambassador Kurtzer's, you know, evocation of the Leon Uris moment, is that 1967 was supposed to provide for a hyphenated identity for American Jews. Now you could be American, Jewish hyphen American. But today, I sort of wonder what's happened to the to the Jewishness. The Torah of the American of American Jewry has now become democracy, and what is Jewish about it, in a sense, is, is I think increasingly being lost, and that's reflected in the conversation about Israel. And again, Israel being sort of a placeholder for a larger conversation about what is the meaning of American Judaism entirely. I'm also really concerned that there's just a lot of um, confusion about what annexation means, maybe even going a step farther than, um, than our two previous speakers about um, the creeping annexation, that the choices here are not anti, is not, you know, annexation or kumbaya in the Middle East. The choices are status quo, creeping annexation, or de jure annexation, but What's happening in opposing annexation is only that you're maybe putting the issues of borders and settlements under a bell jar for the time being, hoping that the other final status issues in the Israel-Palestine conflict do not shift as they currently already are in flux, as well as the borders issue, which, as we've just mentioned, is in flux, even if you think you have it under the bell jar. Um, But I think there's also a lot of kind of maybe magical thinking or even moving of the goalposts, as Shoal said, in another way, in the sense that there's a difference between opposing annexation on the, from the point of view that it's a unilateral act and opposing annexation on the grounds of what is actually happening with the land, the territory, and the people. Some of this annexation could involve settlements that would have been absorbed into territorial Israel under a bilateral peace accord. Um, if you think that these set 450,000 Jewish Israeli settlers that live over the green, um, you know, live in the West Bank proper and 550,000 to 600,000 Israeli settlers that live over the green line, period, are going to, you know, disappear overnight with a snap of your fingers, then there's like a real lot of magical thinking about what the resolution of the Israel-Palestine conflict is going to be. Or even, or even further, I'll say that I think there's another kind of moving of the goalpost rule that I think the people who don't want to acknowledge that are also really anti-annexation has also become a way of saying that you don't even really want a two-state solution, you want a one-state solution, because those solution to that, to that magical thinking problem is really just a one-state solution. There is no two-state solution that can take care of that question. So I'm really concerned about what the annexation debate has really meant in real, like, substantive understanding of where the American Jewish and maybe the larger American community is about the two-state solution and its future, because I think that's what's really going on here. It's not just a question of some kind of uh, limited policy. I think it's a question of have we moved into a new new stage of the conflict altogether? Yeah, I actually do think we've moved to a, a new stage of the conflict. And I won't reiterate what's been said, um, but I do think that annexation would essentially formalize the situation that already exists on the ground. And I think we're in a new stage of the conflict in the sense that previously one could one could live with the, the illusion that Israel is a normal nation state with a temporary aberration attached to it, namely the occupation. Um, but at this point in history, with more than 50 years of occupation and with no resolution on the horizon, I think it's no longer credible to say that Israel is just a, a normal nation state with a temporary aberration and injustice attached to it. And if we just uh, rectify that injustice, Israel can return to its 
um, original vision, which is that of a, a, a democracy, a state which is Jewish and democratic. Um, and just as a footnote here, I would say that um, no one who supports annexation is planning to give the Palestinians who are annexed equal political rights, right? So, I mean, I think that's important to note that it's not just bringing, you know, Jews from Ma'ale Adumim um, within the framework of Israel proper. It also means that Palestinians who are annexed will not be equal citizens. Um, and at that point, I just wanted to say that I do think that we're in the a different phase in the conflict because the nature of the Israeli regime is changing and it's no longer the case that the traditional uh, nation state vision in which the borders of the state neatly correspond to the ethnic identity of the majority of the people who live within that state is the guiding vision of Israeli society, right? Israel is, is moving away from that vision in which the idea was precisely to create a state that was Jewish and democratic precisely because the large majority of the people over whom the state ruled were Jewish. And I think the failure of the Oslo process and the two-state solution um, suggests that there is a move away from that vision. Um, and in that historical moment, it's no surprise that the traditional Zionist left, namely the Labour Party, um, has reached a historic electoral nadir. Like if you look at the, the results of the, the standing of the, of the Labour Party in the past three elections, the, the Labour Party and Meretz, to a, to a certain extent, have lost their raison d'etre because it no longer makes sense to try, it's, it's no longer convincing to say, oh, well, if we just pass some more liberal legislation, we'll finally become the normal liberal nation state that we've always aspired to be, because it's clear that that is no longer the political aspiration of the majority of Israelis. Well, there, I know there are more things to say on this, and we could go on for a while, um... But we are out of time for our for today's session. Let me just say first in, in acknowledging all of you, and I, I'll just tell you all uh, on a personal level that this conversation is precisely what the New Jewish Canon was supposed to cultivate, which is a learned and informed conversation about today's Jewish world, uh, fueled by, uh, informed by the ideas, debates uh, of the last 35 years. And, um, and I think it really is, uh, it is quite enriched by bringing the texts of 1980 to 2015, some of those ideas, noticing how, where Kahana lives, right, in today's Israel discourse, uh, where the Butler Steiner, where Butler Steiner's agitation has turned into a totally different type of remaking of the Jewish communal map. Um, all of these ideas do, um, do inform our contemporary conversation. I'm grateful, uh, to all of you for being part of this conversation today, for your contributions to the book, um, and for, and for, um, being translators uh, of that book um, and those ideas uh, in today's conversation as well. So thanks for listening to our show this week and special thanks to my guests, Julie Cooper, Sarah Hershorn, Dan Kurtzer, and Shaul Magid. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute, edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, with music provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute and our All Together Now programming, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd also love to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.